is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello, uh, welcome along. Um, or welcome back if you've been with us before. This is Enter Sad Men. Uh, my name's Steve. I'm one third of the Holy Trinity that uh, are your hosts for this. Uh, Mark and Richard make up the other 66%. Um, and they're all ready to embark on the next step of our odyssey, which involves reviewing, rating and ranking rock's greatest albums to create the definitive hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. If you've been with us before, well, you know where to find us. Um, on We're out there on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Podbean, TuneIn, Pandora. The list goes on and on. Um, you can also, uh, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at Enter Sadman. Um, and we have a Facebook page. And a website, entersadmen.co.uk, where we look forward to your thoughts. It's uh, a new, improved website this morning. Mark spent uh, what was supposed to be a working day beefing it up impressively. And and it's now a mighty fine read. It was always a mighty fine read. It's mightier and finer than it was before. Um, And we'd love to see your thoughts on what we do. And what we do do is um, every week we pick three albums. There is a theme, a theme to each of them. And I can't remember what last week's theme was, so someone's going to help me out. Boys? The last week's theme was uh, Sheer Art Attack, where we picked uh, three albums. Two of them met the brief, which was uh, an album bought on the uh, strength of the uh, cover artwork alone. But uh, Richard the Scaredy Cat hasn't done that, really, so he just picked an album that he liked the picture on. (laughs) Good episode, though. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, so we reviewed, so Mark went for uh, Blackfoot's Strikes. I went for Marillion's Fugazi. And Bad Steve, uh, down in uh, Hampshire, went for um, Bad Steve, Killing the Night. And let's face it, if it's the only criteria by which Bad Steve would have found its way onto the end of Sad Man playlist is sheer art attack. There's no other reason for that album to find its way out of any record shop, if indeed it was in many record shops in the first place. Which brings us nicely to uh, to this week, because because of course what we also did was we introduced a randomizer, didn't we, to decide what we were going to do from week to week, and um, we gave it. Um, we we really do need to do that as part of the show so that everybody can hear it in its full glory. We we ran it in private last week as well because it was rigged. <laughs> what do you mean it was rigged? You ran it three <laughs> times. Well. We did run it three times, yes, yes. But the reason we ran it three times were the first three things it came up with were three fucking episodes we'd done before. So the bit that I haven't done this week actually is I haven't I haven't moved all of the number two kind of episodes. So we did like, for example, Girls Aloud, and there there will be another Girls Are Loud episode in the future. But I need to take all of those out so they're not counted for the first. All, all, all those balls out of your tombola. That, that, yes, that's exactly it. That's a nice analogy. Yeah, I need to. Yeah, I need to get my balls out of the tombola. So anyway, of that slight digression, the, the 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 magic tombola brought up albums that changed your life for this week. So, um, Richard, what was the album that changed your life? One of the albums that changed my life because we've um, had a couple already. And for, I think, about three or four reasons, which I will talk about when we come to it, is uh, the debut album from Boston. Steve? Yeah, well, I could have chosen several albums that changed my life. And like Richard, I've, always, I've already put a couple out there in earlier episodes. 
Well, I've chosen Y&T's Mean Streak, either their third or their fifth album, depending on how you count Y&T. Um, so mine is an album that I first heard when I was eight years old, uh, and it is Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. So I suppose, actually, before we get into talking about them, we ought to have a quick listen to snippets from all three so that everybody can hear what we're going to be talking about. So if, if, if that little lot hasn't whetted your appetite, then uh, then nothing will. And first of that trio, of course, we do these things in chronological order. We always do. Uh, and we're going to stick with that. So, um, Mark, I think Pink Floyd will uh, kick off episode 16. Opening album sleeve notes. As I said, I first heard Dark Side of the Moon, or to give it its proper title, The Dark Side of the Moon, when it was released. And the reason for that was that my mother who grew up in a very kind of traditional and generational outlook on life where the man was the breadwinner and, you know, the, the, the wife stayed at home and looked after the kids and did the cooking and the cleaning and so on and so forth. My mum decided that she was going to train to be a teacher, an English teacher, English and drama teacher. And she always said through her training um, that when she qualified, she would buy the album that was at number one on the day she qualified. I don't think she thought for a million years, uh, in a million years, that it would be Pink Floyd because she certainly wasn't, you know, a prog rock fan. I think it's fair to say that. I think she probably expected the Carpenters to be out there or something. But no, it was Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, and that was what she went out and she bought. And she played it, and, and I heard it. We lived in a bungalow at the time, and I could hear it from my bedroom being played from the living room down the hall. And it, it just 
absolutely captivated me. And I, I, I'd been given a, like a little gramophone uh, record player either that year or the year before. And I remember sneaking the album out of the record collection, um, which had loads of Matt Munro and fucking Beatles and what have you in it. So I went and got it and I played it. And, um, you know, we talk about the albums that change your life and, and that sometimes seems a bit melodramatic, doesn't it? But I genuinely think Dark Side of the Moon absolutely changed my life. It it made me think about things in a very kind of naive, young way, but it made me think about issues, um, which we'll get onto, I'm sure, as we talk through the album. But it, it made me think about issues like homelessness. There are some lines in uh, Us and Them, that you know really struck me. Um, obviously, mental health is a huge theme running through the album as well, and you know it kind of made you think about that. Made you think about death. Um, it kind of got me thinking about the futility sometimes of life and wasting time. So, you know, some pretty big themes for an eight-year-old. And as I say, it wasn't a particularly academic. I wasn't thinking about it in an academic way. I was thinking about it like an eight-year-old. Um, but over time all of those themes have kind of evolved and grown and and taken shape. I'll make a, a bold statement, and I have absolutely no idea what you two think about it, really, but I think this is the first time in the show that we have an album that genuinely could give Zeppelin a run for its money at the top. What about you guys? Well, I'm, I'm welling up here, Mark. I, I, I didn't know you'd put so much thought into the bloody thing. My Y&T backstory's got nothing. <laughs> I'm going to have to rethink this. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure steve oh, i'll tell you what i'll, I'll go first because i know rich will love it whenever i've listened to dark side of the moon i've always just thought you know what emperor's new clothes but we've got half an hour to film now so i can't just leave it there it's the whole pink floyd thing so i've looked through like you have i've looked through done loads of research this week on on this album and, and what people have said about it and and I thought I'd, I'd kick off what I thought with a couple of reviews that I saw, and I've not sourced them because they're just people out there on forums, and these are the polar opposites that you get with this band probably more than any any other band. A warming slice of arthouse elegance full of depth, innovation, and no little fine musicianship. At the bottom end, no, no amount of we're-so-clever backslapping can disguise the fact that this is nothing more than pretentious, self-indulgent tosh. And there you have... In a nutshell, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, they split opinions like, like like very few bands do. I don't get the fuss about the album. I genuinely don't, and, and we'll talk it through. And that's, But it doesn't anger me. I mean, in the same way that it enraged Malcolm McLaren, for example. I mean, I, I can't see a link between, say, us and them and Anarchy in the UK. But if I'm honest, it's it's... I mean, you can't question their, their their cleverness, their wit, their talent, their musicianship, but the upshot for me is that it's just not a piece of work that in any way really excites me. It's probably not meant to. There are times and places when it's a really thoroughly pleasant listen, but Emperor's New Clothes. Okay. Richard? We've had lots of, picking up what Steve just said, we've had lots of conversations in previous episodes about those particular tracks that are one overplayed and two absolutely worshipped. You know, we've talked about Freebird, we've talked about Stairway to Heaven, we've talked about uh, Smoke on the Water, etc., etc., etc. I think the the thing with Dark Side of the Moon is it it applies to the whole bloody album. The thing's taken on a 
life of its own because so many people absolutely worship it. So I see where you're coming from, Steve. It's always been not my favourite Pink Floyd album that um, would be Wish You Were Here. It's an album I still really, really enjoy. It isn't an album to excite. It's an album to just sit and let it surround you. The, the one joy I've had of this last week has been sitting in the chair and actually putting this album on from end to end for the first time and listening to it through a high fine a pair of speakers and having that excuse to do so because it, it, it's one that does need to be listened to end to end. It's not perfect. I think there is a, per- a perfect track and a couple of near perfect tracks on it. And I think it's, it's almost become a victim of its own success. I could be wrong, but I, I truly can't believe that when uh, sort of set out to make this album, they were trying to be pretentious. I think they were just trying to make a piece of music as best they knew how at the time. I mean, th- th- so this, this, they did, th- this was a concept album. This was a concept album essentially about life. Again, hats off to them. The way they blended the songs, the, the, the way that they almost, almost speak to me and to breathe is a prelude to, to the rest of the album, mm-hmm. um, to little themes that come within each, you know, so that, that repeat themselves throughout the album, the way that songs almost introduce each other, like the, the, the last line of time introduces um, the great gig in the sky. I think it's really clever without spilling over into pretentious. So it starts with the heartbeat, which, of course, the the heartbeat bookends the the album, doesn't it? Um, It begins and ends on the heartbeat of life, Steve, the pretentious heartbeat of life. I know you didn't call it pretentious, but, you know. This is a classic overture, isn't it? And and, and a classic overture should feature snippets from all tracks if, if you were extending this to the sort of, you know, um, theatre or opera sense of it, and that's what this does. And apparently they wanted to use a real heartbeat, but they couldn't get it to kind of work quite right. So it gives way in fairly quick order into uh, into Breathe and speaks to me, you're right, it is a prelude to everything else. It's, um, it uses a lot of the uh, SFX from, that are used throughout the album. So you've got the tills and cash registers of money in it you've got the spoken word stuff which we'll come on to because that was um that was a a a kind of an an interesting device that the band used and of course breathe is really about taking time to appreciate where you are what you're doing who you are Uh, i think the one thing that i would say about this album is that it is regardless of what you think about it an absolutely amazing piece of work musically forget the lyrics forget the the concept but just as a suite of music this is a pleasant piece of music most of it on here is pleasant it just envelops you the, the one place i hope you don't mind me saying this the one place i have listened to this in full well all week obviously but and thoroughly enjoyed it was on a beach in majorca and, and it's a beach in majorca kind of album i found this lovely beach beach bar some bloke had given up on life clearly running this beach bar um, and he played it end to end, you know, kids are running around doing what they want. I'm on a sun lounger and Dark Side of the Moon in, in that situation was perfect. Although I have to say they did then go straight into Wish You Were Here, which is a far superior album. But yeah, there's, there's a time and a place for this, as Richard mentioned earlier. When you're out steaming around the countryside on your bike, that's not it because it will just pass you by. 
But when you're really chilled and, and want to think, fair enough. For me, it's an album to listen to when it's dark. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, it's it, it, there is. You're absolutely right. There's a there's a time and a place where it, it helps. No, agreed. Uh, yeah, it, it is a it isn't a, uh, a play anytime album. You're absolutely right about that. We've moved into on the run, which is uh, largely instrumental and sound effect driven. And uh, Steve and I were having a conversation actually earlier in the week. I said, yeah, this is 1973. Some of what we're hearing on On the Run is almost a precursor to Jean-Michel Jarre. You know, that kind of electronica. I mean, this On the Run could have could have been on Oxygen. It's not Jean-Michel Jarre that I draw a parallel to uh, with this. It's Kraftwerk. Um, there's, a ma- there's a massive similarity between this and parts of Autobahn. So the frenetic pace of On The Run makes way for time. I love time. I bore you both to tears about uh, space and where notes aren't. And um, Pink Floyd are masters of that, and in particular on on this album. Just uh, yeah, Nick Mason, he's a pretty decent drummer. You're not in the same league as you know Bonham and Peart and all of that. But it's... Where, where he hits them, uh, that not often, but um, how they contribute is brilliant. But time has given way, as time does, um, to the great gig in the sky, which um, includes lyricless vocals um, from Claire Torrey. Um, Steve knows the answer to this, but pop quiz, Richard, what else did Claire Torrey record? What is she famous for? Oh, sorry, I knew this. Uh, what you mean, the Top of the Pops covers album? No. Yeah, she she did. You know, you know those Top of the Pops albums that you used to get in Woolworths. The rubbish covers of uh, whatever yeah. songs were available at the day. You used to pick it up for about thirty-seven p. She was one of the singers on that. She was also the singer of something that was far, far more popular. Nicholas Lindhurst, Jeffrey Palmer, Wendy Craig. Butterflies? Butterflies. Wow. There you go. Because she was suggested by Alan Parsons, wasn't she, Um, to to, um, add a a layer on something that Richard Wright had already written. I'd love to have been there when this was recorded. I don't know the extent, if you read up on this, the extent to which this was improvised versus planned. I've been reading Nick Mason's book this week and, Inside Out, A Personal History of Pink Floyd. And he basically said she was asked to wail, and wail she did. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, irrespective of how uh, unco- whether what her voice does to you, if that's the case, I mean, it's incredible piece of impro- improvisation. And financially, the best piece of work she ever did. I mean, she only got paid 30 quid at the time, and it didn't, it didn't last there, did it? Credited, isn't she? Credited yeah. on, on the track. Well, she is now. She wasn't then? No. No. Ah. She sued Pink Floyd. And EMI. Yeah. Uh, and part of the, part of the um, settlement was she had to be credited on, uh, on future pressings of the album. But um, the great gig in the sky and Claire Torrey has stopped wailing. And we have, would you say this is the most iconic opening to a track ever? It's, it's right up there, isn't it? 
We're, we're talking about money now. Do you know how they did the money thing? No, go on. And I quote from Nick Mason, Roger and I constructed the tape loop for money in our home studios and then took it into Abbey Road. I had drilled holes in old pennies, threaded them onto strings. They gave one sound on the loop of seven. Roger had recorded coins swirling around in the mixing bowl. Judy, as his wife, used for her pottery. The tearing paper effect was created very simply in front of a microphone and the faithful sound library supplied the cash registers. Fantastic. Hardly high tech, is it? No. How many sounds are there? Seven. Yeah, because this song is in? Seven-eighth time or some some ridiculous metre. And it changes, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it, it, uh, no, let's not, because now I'll, I'll send you and the listeners to sleep. Yeah, so it, it's combinations of three, four, and four, four uh, bars, generally seven, four with a three, four, and a four, four, but sometimes they, they'll they do two, three, threes to, uh, to, but yeah, anyway. So anyway, Steve, how's your week been? <laughs> um, but uh, the reason why this is so iconic and so recognised is because it's used on every uh, well, not every. It's ridiculous, but it's it it has been overused to illustrate news pieces. You know anything about money? They wheel out the beginning of this track, wouldn't they? So yeah, it was. Um, it's it's a pretty well known piece of music. I remember being really quite shocked in 1973 that 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 a band had sung "Do Goody Good Bullshit." on an album that's that's how old this is where where the word bullshit could shock <laughs> played on radio today it's still uh, faded out ever so slightly isn't it mm. so uh, at the risk of getting a bit pretentious i would suggest that this is that the lyrical content particularly of this side of the album is um is still super relevant you know greed morality a lack of charity and humanity, the sort of recognition that there's a bit of lunacy in everybody. Um, do we think it's a, so still relevant as a social commentary? Yes. Yes. It wasn't. A, it was. It was a genuine question. I wasn't expecting you just to go. Yeah, I agree with you. Fucking hell. You know, let's make a show of it. Ever more so, Mark. I think as we uh, when we refer to Rage Against the Machines' uh, debut album that. Uh, no, no, sorry, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's funny, isn't it? Like with that and this, that the, the, it it doesn't change. So um, money now mutates into uh, us and them, which is my favourite track on the album. I think it over the over time, this is um, I think this becomes more and more relevant and more and more meaningful to me. I, I was always struck by the line at the end of it for want of the price of a tea and a slice, the old man died. Because that, that to me, really sums up the singularity of society sometimes and the fact that we all just walk past people who are struggling or suffering and we don't, take, we don't lift our eyes up off the ground. So, so I think this, this has themes in it that, you know, when we talk about the album that changed your life, I think my attitude to other people changed listening to this song. This song in particular? Yeah, this song in particular. This song in particular, I mean, I think there are all sorts of themes in this this song about, um, you know, the, the, the general was sat and the lines on the map 
you know, which for me is a, is a, a metaphor for leadership. Um, the fact that if you're going to lead, you lead with people, not from the back. The the emotional dismissal of other people's I know, struggles, I suppose, and and that carries on through the album. Then with things like brain damage and um, eclipse, which is just about we're all here on the same earth, we're all walking and going in the same direction, but we don't spend time thinking about the people around us. That might be pretentious. It might be clever. It might be nonsense but it um <laughs> it spoke to me and may yeah and that is why this album for me is it, it was an easy choice for me it's interesting you say it marcus as you've grown older you, you pretty much said those exact same words to me 25 years ago so i can't remember this could have been uh, one of the tracks that you played me on the first ever sad night that we did uh, Easter Sunday in 1995. You played, the, we didn't play the whole, whole albums. You played this track um, and you, the, the tea and the slice piece. And I mean, and you talked about the mark that this album and particularly this track made on you as a person. Yeah. The, the, this track always makes me aspire to be better than I am actually. And question everything. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? There's a whole load of themes running through this album, a series of vignettes, isn't it? And um, 47 years later, is it 47 years? They're all as relevant now as they were then, as you as you, you made that point earlier. Yeah, nothing much has changed. It's a very pretty song. About two minutes too long. Yeah, it's interesting you say too long. It doesn't feel like nearly eight minutes to me. No, I, I, I know, I've never thought it too long. It's my favourite on the album. Because I can't actually think about what you would do to make it more perfect. This track, along with many others, feature spoken word. Do you guys are you guys aware of how they did that? Was it was it part, part of it was a road crew, wasn't it? They, they, they interviewed the road crew, and then didn't they ask some people certain questions or something? Was that? It? Yeah. So so what they did. Something Roger Waters came up with, and it, it was called. So he had a, a number of questions, and they were. It was called questions for assorted lunatics, and um, he said, um, "People often often ask me about the voices on Dark Side. I was trying to gather audio snippets to mix into segues on Dark Side. Rather than interviewing people, I came up with the idea of writing a series of questions on cards. The cards would be in a stack on a conductor's stand in front of a mic." and we'd scour Abbey Road Studios for willing guinea pigs, bring them to the studio, sit them down, roll tape, and then ask them to respond to each card in order. As I recall, the first card was something irrelevant and innocuous, like, what's your favourite colour? And the last was the more enigmatic, what do you think of the dark side of the moon? I can't remember the ones in between, except for, are you afraid of dying? When were you last violent? Were you in the right? Do you ever think you're going mad? If so, why? And it was a real afterthought, apparently. The whole thing was, um, they'd almost done the album, didn't they? And when Roger came up with the brainwave, who was the famous pop double act who were quizzed, but they didn't use their questions? They were in the studio at the same time. Just just for the purpose of being glib, since they make an appearance in virtually every show we do, I'm going to say Chaz and Dave. <laughs> no, Paul and Linda McCartney. Wow. They were recording um, Red Rose Speedway with Wings at the time, and they were they were 
brought in, given the cards, asked the questions. According to Nick Mason, they were guarded, very reserved, and we didn't use any material from their session. <laughs> so us and them is followed by instrumental, any colour you like. Not much to say about that, really. Again, it's a perfectly decent instrumental. Ibiza Beach Chill, before Ibiza Beach Chill came about. So this is Brain Damage. What's your favourite lyric out of Brain Damage? My favourite one is um, the lunatics are in the hall. The paper holds their faded, their pa- folded faces to the floor, which is kind of, as a journalist, that, that always kind of strikes a chord with me that, you know, we were always responsible for sending lunatics into people's houses. Yeah, no, that's interesting, isn't it? What do you make of it as a track? I love it. Absolutely love it. The reason you ask the question is you don't. <laughs> it's a, it's it's a little it's a, it's old Floyd for me, a little bit too Beatles perhaps. And I'm I'm guessing that, well I'm not guessing. I've looked and, and it's it's definitely some sort of tribute to or observation about um Sid Barrett. I mean a couple of really short songs aren't they at the end brain damage mm. and then it kind of closes out with uh, Eclipse. So come on then, uh, highs and lows. Um, Steve, let's start with you. Yeah, well, as I've said, this is awkward because of how you mark this bloody thing. Uh, I mean, if you could speak to me and breathe, probably that would be my low point. I like the great gig in the sky of all of them. I just think, I don't quite know why it's genius, but it just is. I just think it's an absolute masterstroke. Richard? On purely track terms on the run uh for me is is my low because it, it it's fine you know it fits in with the album richard wright sitting there with uh you know a few little twiddly knobs on a on a sequencer is um yeah fine i could do that and and then uh for me as i said i mean I'd, us and them is is, is my track it, it's a 10 because it is just such a unique track there's not another not another song in the world like it Cool. So, uh, well, I'm with you on us and them, and my uh, low point for me, um, I think any colour you like is nice and lovely and pretty. But uh, yeah, it would it would be at the bottom of my list, not the top. How would you score this album? Post your rating in the comments section of each episode guide at www.entersadmen.co.uk, and we'll add it to the listener hall of fame. Good. All right. Well, we will um, get around to marking that album later, but uh, it's time to move on. Richard, tell us about Boston. Opening album sleeve notes. My choice uh, was uh, Boston's debut album from uh, 1976. Um, so an album that changed. So why did this, amongst other albums, change my life? I'm going to give five reasons. The, the first is um, the it was the album that just sort of really shoved me into loving, um, well, let's call it melodic rock. This essentially is the album that, that launched AOR. That, you know, I love REO, I love Journey, you know, all, that, all those bands, love Survivor. Uh, this is the album that, that, that started all of that. It's an album that just, at the first time I heard it, gave me goosebumps. And when I play it today... It still gives me goosebumps. In more than a feeling, 
does it have the best first track on an album ever? And I think following that for me, side one is as close to perfection in my view, those three tracks as, as you can get on an album. And then, uh, I mean, I, I came, I came to this album actually quite late, probably around, I think about, about 79, 80. I mean, four years, four years after it was recorded uh, and, and, and nearly a decade after Tom Schultz actually started writing uh, some of this stuff. But then, um, and uh, a little while later, let's just say, um, it, it, uh, it also changed my life um, because whenever I play it, it reminds me of um, a, uh, one of my early girlfriends and uh, let's say uh, the achievement of a per- certain personal milestone uh, for me in my life. So um, uh, for those reasons, uh, that's why I've, uh, I've, I've chosen it. So what 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 do we say? Yeah, I mean I mean Boston Boston were the the brainchild of Tom Schultz. Are uh, Boston are well? No, I don't think they are Tom Schultz because without Brad uh, the singer, I, I think it, it, it they they wouldn't sound the way that they sound. I mean the album was recorded over a long period between October seventy five and April seventy six. Uh, released in uh, August nineteen seventy six. Tom started writing songs for the album in 1969. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it was an album that had, I mean, very low sales expectations, but it, 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 at the time it then absolutely smashed debut album sales records. Um, I mean, for some time it was the biggest selling, I think until it was the Appetite for Destruction, it was the biggest selling debut album in the world ever. It only took it three weeks to get to gold, which in the US is 500,000 uh, units, and then three months to get to a million, which is, is platinum. And um, by 2003, it sold 70 million plus. Um, I mean, on Spotify, I mean, more than things got ridiculous number of uh, millions of downloads. Your opening thoughts, gentlemen? Um, I really like this album. I really like it. But if you have created the most iconic song you will ever record, and it's the first track on your first album, where do you go from there? Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And I, um, and I think that's the problem. It's not a huge problem because it's a really, really good album, but you've kind of set the bar really high at track one, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think, you know, this this whole album was so long in, in its in its creation. I mean, it's almost like a bottle of champagne, isn't it? And and when the when the cork went, yeah, the the excitement, uh, that initial excitement, and then yeah, was was the stuff that was left in the bottle a bit flat afterwards. And certainly, the, their their second album, "Don't Look Back," is is um, I find immensely underwhelming. But then, "Don't Look Back," I don't think has a track that even meets the the weakest track on on this album, in my view. They they kind of nearly got back to it with third stage. Um, and there's a few tracks on there that, that that are nearly up there. But anyway, amazing piece of music. Yeah, and and I you know I love it. I I, I was listening to it, so um, I, I was lucky enough to that uh, Joe and I had the house to ourselves last weekend because um, my wife and daughter went away Nikki and holly went away for the weekend and um and I, I had to go out and get um i was i was getting uh takeaway pizzas so i had to drive to get it and and it happened to be that 
I mean, I don't know how you guys listen to these albums every week, but I listen to them on rotation. And it just so happened that I was, you know, listening. It was it was the point at which I was listening to um, to Boston, um, and I drove. It was a beautiful summer's evening. All the windows were down, and it, I think uh, I think the journey that I made took me from more than a feeling to hitch a ride, and I was absolutely fabulous. I mean, you know, it was a fantastic. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, and I didn't, you know, you, you know how you, you, and we've all done it, I'm sure, you're walking down the street and, and some twax drives by with the windows open playing their fucking stereo of ridiculous volume and you just think, yeah, well, fuck off. You know, I don't really, I'm, nobody, you know, we don't all like your fucking music. Turn it down, you twat. Um, well, I was the twat because it was turned up really loud, really, really loud. Um and it was great, and so I really love this album. But I'm always, I always feel with it that I'm on a, on once more than a feelings over. I'm kind of on the way, on a slide, a gentle slide, to the end of the album. Does do, do you get what I'm saying? Do you get what I mean? It's it's not that it's bad. It's that you start so high, and you always, and, and I just feel like. Mm. I mean, more. You talk about more than a feeling. We talk about songs that are overplayed. Um, you know, more than a feeling is another one that kind of ticks that box, isn't it? You know, so there's a bit of familiarity breeds contempt about it. And it, and but what I love about what we do is that you you kind of have to get yourself past that and 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 consider the the songs for what they are and what they represent. So you kind of move yourself beyond that. Funnily enough, more than a feeling is not my favourite track on the album. Um, yeah, I, I could happily listen to side one and not worry if I didn't turn it over. That's where I got to with it. Yeah, Steve, what do you think? I echo everything you said. Yeah, side two does taper off, definitely. Although I, I think it probably tapers off a little bit later than when Mark's suggesting. It's just, it's just the back two tracks that I'm just not bothered about at all. But I just think the whole story with this this band and this album and this bloke Tom Schultz is just a, just an extraordinary story, um, and he is an extraordinary unrock and roll figure. You know, when I heard, I mean, he was twenty nine. I think Rich, you'll have to help me out here. He was twenty nine when this came out. That's late for an a, you know an aspiring rock god because that's not what he wanted to be. I, I love the fact that he was working in. Um, I must have misread it. I thought he was working in a camera shop. But he, he wasn't, was he? He was working as a design engineer at Polaroid. Or yeah, I, yeah, I had the camera yeah, and, and film manufacturer, yeah. Yeah, so I got that all wrong. I just thought he was some humble sales assistant. He was nothing of the sort, clearly. He was, he was, a, he was, a, he was a boffin with a master's degree and, you know, played rock stuff at night in the bars of, you know, Massachusetts, of Boston and Massachusetts, where we lived. And, you know, had this album not sold well in the first couple of weeks, he'd have jacked it in. We'd never have heard of him, and we'd never heard of Boston. So you know, thank heavens the the the, the, the he struck gold, and it was quickly latched upon by um, you know the, the, the rock loving world, and um, and we've got this you know beast of an album, which is it's it's been a really really brilliant listen. Uh, I mean, I mean, they, they produced a demo in 1973 that had five of the tracks of this album on it. Um, so it had more than a feeling. It had peace of mind, rock and roll band, 
Um, it had uh, something about you and uh, Hitch a Ride. And they touted it around to about five or six uh, record companies and they they just got they got rejected by everybody, yeah. including ironically Epic. Uh, Epic told them that um, that, they, that they offered nothing new. <laughs> I mean, his vision was to create this sort of multi-layered melodic music that also happened to be pretty rocky. And then, yeah, was was told, nah, no nah, thanks, don't want that. But yeah, but then, I mean, then in, it, a couple of years later, Epic contacted them again because they'd heard about this mad genius in a basement. Um, and... and um, yeah, and then and obviously they were they were signed and um, originally originally called Mother's Milk, but then changed that name to Boston when they um, when they signed. It's a really interesting point, isn't it? I think it was John Boyden was the engineer that was the producer, but was, isn't it a really interesting point? You know, had they kept the name Mother's Milk, would they have been the same band? Who knows? Well, I think I think we can all agree that Boston was a much better name than Mother's Milk. Yeah. yeah. Okay, right. Well, um, there's a song uh, that a few people might know called More Than a Feeling um, that starts uh, the album. Um, the, the guitar at the start of this is a 100-pound Yamaha acoustic uh, that, that Tom put through all his uh, fancy electronics. They convinced the uh, record company that he needed a really complicated, uh, super expensive guitar um, uh, for Brad, uh, about you know about three three thousand dollars or something, and they bought that, and then Tom just uh, recorded it on a basic Yamaha. Um, and it's um, it's because uh, he he was uh, actually secretly in love uh, uh, in this song, secretly in love with an older cousin, as he was uh, yeah, he was he was aged eight or nine, and he had an older cousin. Obviously, his feelings were awakening, and Marianne was uh, this elder cousin of his. It, it's about well, it's about daydreaming, isn't it? It's an ode to daydreaming, um, and I think remembering times past, daydreaming about this uh, his first love, uh, walking away. Curious if no, if she knows she's been immortalised in vinyl. This Marianne, that's all. But... Well, <laughs> if it was really a cousin, right? She must be listening to this, going, okay. So that was so Tom wrote that. There's a girl called Marianne. Hmm. I wonder. You'd think she'd put things together, wouldn't you? These songs that we know so well because they are played so often, but oh, I never get tired of this. The light and shade, the dark, the, the, the energy, the harmonies, the guitar solos, absolutely immense. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant track. Nobody but nobody could say that this was anything other than outstanding. Obviously, I don't know what the record company thought or whether what Tom thought around. Because you know about, I mean, obviously the other big thing about Tom was inventing his Rockman series of effects. I mean, he couldn't get the sounds he wanted from the equipment he had at the time. So he dabbled with electronics, produced these various um, you know, Rockman boxes. And, and so many of them are being used on this on this track. His, his favourite device is called a hyperspace pedal. So you know that, that, that basically the, the, where they, he, he rings this chord and it's almost got, a, a, I don't know, just like this galactic quality about it, this huge, huge sound. His chords are from these uh, these boxes that he, he built. And, I, and it's, I think on this track, he threw the kitchen sink in. 
Yes, he did. Yeah. There's everything in this, isn't there? Yeah. Presumably he designed the kitchen sink as well. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, you listen to the end of it as it as it's starting to kind of work its way out of the room. You're just going, nothing they do now is going to match that. So you kind of go, uh, I've, we've done the best of the album now. The album is a victim of, of the brilliance of that track. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives way to Peace of Mind, which um, was uh, written about his uh, time at Polaroid and his bosses and um, I guess his torn between him being what he, you know, as a, you know, as a person, what he wanted to be and having to earn a crust of bread. I, I, I really like it as a, as a second track. Um, yeah, not as good as the first, but good fun. <laughs> I hate to labour the point. It's just not as good as the first one. <laughs> um, so not foreplay, but um, but long time is my favourite track on the album. Yeah, ditto. That foreplay element of it, the only t- the, the two names that sprang to mind with me were Johann Sebastian Bach and Focus, and I can't quite get the two of them out of my head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's very focused, isn't it? That's very true. I, I've got I've got somebody else in there with them. Go on. Ingwe. <laughs> the lunatic is on the grass. Yeah, 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 exactly. Now, this, this, uh, this is my, yeah, I, I love Long Time. I think it's um, it's got loads of energy. And, um, and it's still, not that More Than A Feeling doesn't still sound fresh, but it's, but it's, it, it feels fresher for not having been played so much, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, I, and it, I put 0.5 of a mark between them. Yeah, it, it's it's as good as you know. It, it, it's absolutely brilliant song. This is perfect classic rock radio, isn't it? It's, it, I mean, probably too long for most radio stations, but that riff, um, and which they keep coming back to, but they wander around to get to it with the hand clapping and the harmonies. And the harmonies are another thing on this album, aren't they? Absolute front and centre of everything they do vocally. I just think this is a, I think this is a giant track. Yeah, I'm with you, Steve. And you can, and this track for me, you can hear Journey in this. This is what this is what Journey took. This could be a Journey song easily. Yeah. It was all all Brad's vocals, all multi-layered. The plan here was to create this unbelievably melodic, layered rock music. I, I'm presuming that I, I, I'm saying I'm presuming they used all 24 tracks. Yeah, obsessed with this, with all of this subtle layering, um, and, and yeah, and that's and that's what makes this track. It's an amazing, amazing song. Absolute, absolute monster. We talk a lot about production, don't we, and albums that haven't been done that well and that are too flat and da-da-da. I mean, so this was done in this guy's basement and the, the expanse of this, uh, the definition of each instrument, the, the, the layers of the harmonies, I mean, it's unbelievable. So let's talk about side two then. And we start uh, with Rock and Roll Band, which is a lie because... They didn't uh, play loads of venues and sleep in their cars. They created it all in Tom's basement and sent a load of demo tapes off to record companies. 
All I would say is they are more of a rock and roll band than Motorhead, whatever Lemmy says. <laughs> Agreed. This is, this is a really interesting juxtaposition of tracks because we kick off side two with two rock and roll tracks, in effect, and the second one is utterly eclipses this one. <laughs> I quite like this one, but it simply doesn't compare to Smoking, which follows up. And they are, you know, basically quite similar tracks. This is a much more... Like a traditional track. I mean, you, it, it's it's um, pretty much it's pretty much one guitar track, bass, drums, a bit of layered vocals. I mean, uh, Brad laid down pretty much two vocals for even the standard single vocal track. So even on this, he's, if you hear, there's a depth in his voice because he, he generally laid down two vocal tracks through the whole whole album. But then, of course, and then the other ones, he he would lay out lay a load of layered backing vocals. Uh, uh, behind it. So track two on side two, Smoking. Written in 1973. How would it compare to other other stuff uh, released in 73? Um, I don't know. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Steve. It, it's a uh, way better track than uh, Rock and Roll Band. As a drummer, this is one of my drumming challenges. I love drumming to this song, and the, the drums make this. So... This is the only song on the album that features a writing credit for anyone other than just Tom Schultz. Brad Delp, co-credit. It's also covered by Anthrax. I don't know, I'm just guessing, but I think it's going to be a bit faster than this. <laughs> but, I mean, we joke about it, but this, this cracks along at a right old lick, even in Boston's hands. Yeah, yeah it's real, real it's a boogie, isn't it? It's got a real groove yeah. to it. Question... Given his time over, would Tom Schultz still record it on a Hammond organ? Yes. You think? Well, well, obviously I could ask him. Maybe we should try and get him on the show. I mean, if you take, he's he was obsessed with analog. Third stage, which obviously was uh, uh, you know recorded in the early eighties when sort of digital was starting to come to the fore and synthesised and everything else. He obsessed with making sure that third stage was entirely analog in the whole recording process no synthesizers at all you know completely ironic that then uh, the majority of its sales were on cd but uh, presuming he's still true to his roots uh, the way he makes his music and certainly all his effects are, are analog so smoking makes way to hitch a ride which has got a most beautiful beginning with the guitar and the, the, the harmony vocals. There's something folky about it, isn't there, as well? You know, kind of there's a bit of Steely Dan, and then it goes into something a bit more conventional. But that opening is absolutely beautiful. I really like this track. It's gone a bit sort of mamas and papas, isn't it? The track does improve. I mean, that, that's not a criticism, but the, the track does get better and better as it goes on, I think. No, I agree. Well, that, that just means it's got more distortion, Steve. <laughs> Possibly so. <laughs> but Tom, in, this, in a bit, Tom will stamp on a pedal and it'll yeah. be fine. <laughs> yeah, and it gets bigger. The track gets bigger. Yeah, it grows. It grows. Uh, it's, it's great, isn't it? yeah. Okay, so next to last song uh, on uh, this album is uh, Something About You. I'm done now. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a perfectly fine track, but it's not. Um, it, you know, you, 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 it has to be compared to what's gone before, and it's 
and the, the, this uh, and let me take your hand tonight as well that neither of them passed muster really compared to uh, the earlier stuff on the album it's funny isn't it it's funny about about i mean how we're doing this with the, the, when a bar is set um but individually i i'm not, you know these these aren't bad tracks no no i agree no, on a different album by a different band, you'd be you'd be going, "This is really good," wouldn't you? And 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 it's not, you know, it is good. There's there's nothing wrong with any of this album. It's just that it it's it just progressively moves further away from more than a feeling <laughs> with each track. That that's 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 the, what's wrong with it. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's really, you know, I feel quite conflicted about it. It's fairly. I don't know. Yeah, more traditional, isn't it? The album finishes uh, with the uh, "Let me let me take you home tonight," um, which I I really like. It's it's not it's not a favourite track of mine, but again, as you said, Rich, it does build, and and that's a definite that's definitely a theme through Boston's debut album, isn't it? They, they don't half they don't half build a track. Okay, so for a minute, forget about more than a feeling. Talk, think about this as the last track on an album, and. Um, the last track on the first album of a band, and this is the track that they're going to leave you with. You know, it says, bye, we're going to go now, but just before we go, we're going to put some unbelievable vocal hooks into your head. Um, I think it's a great finish. I think it's a great finish, this album. And, and obviously Brad's going to show, show his um, lady Sweet Delight. Can I, can I just stop you there on Sweet Delight, okay? Because I, I just can't get Afternoon Delight out of my head now. I've gone. It's gone all Ron Burgundy for me now. This for me is the weakest song on the album by a good distance. Compared to everything else, it's just ordinary. And and I think Boston, by and large, were anything but ordinary. This isn't the only track they do that starts out on a nice drive out on a summer's afternoon with your girlfriend by your side in an open top car and ends up running red lights and being chased by the cops. That's That's how they do it, isn't it? This, I tell you what, what's happening here is the band want to get to the end of this song as much as I do. Okay, well, on that point, I think we might know what uh, Mark's um, not so good is, uh, but highs and lows, gents. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, let's get the lows out of the way first. Yeah, I can't really split the last two, if I'm honest. Um, I've scored them accordingly, but I mean, if I was doing tenths, probably something about you is just marginally worse than Let Me Take You Home Tonight. Not worse, but just not as good. And the, the pick for me, I mean, it's impossible. I mean, I, like you, Rich, I've got 0.5 between more than a feeling and four play long time, but I fancy I might have mine the other way around because long time gets it for me. So, yeah, t- Take Me Home Tonight is um, is is the low point. Um, I have 0.1 between the two of them uh, and long time is gets the 10. So I, something about you is um, my uh, lowest, and yeah, as I said before, um, more than a feeling, just pips long time uh, to the top for me. Yeah, it's been uh, lovely playing that again. Enjoyed sharing that. I, I, I have to say, I, I, I had an absolute blast listening to that over the last week. Um, really look forward to it every time it came around on the three three album rotation. So um, yeah, great choice, Rich. How would you score this album? Post your rating in the comments section of each episode guide at www.entersadmen.co.uk and we'll add it to the Listener Hall of Fame. 
it doesn't stop there, does it? Uh, we move into the 80s for Y&T's Mean Streak. Steve, take us in. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, well, you can, you can rely on me to bring you back into the 80s. That is my, that is my decade of choice. Yeah, so I've, got, I've chosen uh, Mean Streak um, by Y&T, their, their fifth studio album, uh, as a, or third studio album as Y&T. Depends on how you want to do it. Their first two releases having been as yesterday and today. Um, although it's the same lineup. So, yeah, fifth studio album released in 1983 on AM Records. But why Mean Streak? Why is this the one that uh, changed my life more than any other? This is all about friendship, this album to me. This takes me back to what could have been the worst five months of my life, and they turned into some of the best months of my life in late 1984 um, when I had the could have been misfortune turned into good fortune of going down to uh, Hastings as uh, to do training in the career that I do and that's where I met Mark within within a week of getting to know each other we, we found common ground which was the glory that is hard rock and heavy metal my education was um, far less complete than his and so I would go up to his flat on the seafront at St. Leonard's, and he would introduce me to some works that I've not heard before, and, and, and you know, an awful lot of works that I've not heard before, because he was um, he had a massive record collection. There's no two ways about it. And one of the first tracks he ever played me, and I'm guessing therefore because he loved it, was this was Mean Street, and I fell in love with it. Absolutely fell in love with it, and it kicked off five of the best months of my life because we just shared so many great memories there. This Mean Street means to me breakfast at Friston's on the on the seafront. Mean Street means to me nights at Mr Cherry's. It means to me a curry on a Saturday night with the A-team. It means to me playing Hyper Olympics at the pier. It means so much of that and so much more. Um, and that's so many years ago now and, and it's still as fresh to me now as it was then because of what it means to me personally all about friendship and so yeah it changed my life and you know what the rest of the album ain't bad either but there's no point asking you mark because you'll agree with me richard are you a big fan yeah i, I, I love this and, and the question i want us to discuss as we we go through this is it, it how the hell were wine tea bigger I, I don't understand i mean I, yeah i'm not i i got into them um and and this this album and and Black Tiger when I was at uni, so someone introduced them to me there, and then yeah, and then I remember in that again back to those early sad nights in uh, in the mid nineties. Mark played it all to me again where we were in in, in Stevenage and uh, Main Street, another unbelievable opening track. I, I was trying to think of uh, other tracks that have. That's just so distinctive in terms of that guitar riff. Um, so yeah, yeah, great, great album. Good, Mark. Your memories? Yeah. So well, so Y&T are my probably my second favorite band of all time. I love Dave Menekes's voice. Love his guitar work. Uh, I love the, his songwriting. Mean Street was actually was, was I'd already got um, all of that stuff around Hastings is is absolutely you know that's what that this album means to me as well it's it's all of those things it's it's you know in addition to all of the things you listed it's it's also sitting playing pac-man waiting for our laundry to 
finish at the laundrette. And um, and it's but the other thing about Hastings was that the albums that were released by this band from Black Tiger through Mean Streak and in Rock We Trust, I remember just not being able to wait for them all to be released. And um, and it, particularly in Rock We Trust, there was only one record shop in Hastings. It came out, I think, in September, late August or September 1984. And I, I walked, and it was in the town centre, and we were quite a long way out of Hastings town centre, won't we, Stephen? And I walked into the town centre four times to buy the album, only to find it wasn't in stock on three occasions. So, so Y&T were an album that I was prepared to go to quite a lot of lengths to get their stuff. Mean Street particularly, when it came out back in the day, I recorded the title track, which was also the first single in the UK. I recorded that onto a C90 cassette on a loop. And then I put it in the car and literally I just played the tape from front to back so it just played mean streak on a never-ending loop and um and yeah i just i love this album absolutely love it and uh, it's not their best album i don't think i think probably i would always choose Earthshaker as as my favorite wine album but my god there are some <laughs> cracking tunes on this absolutely cracking tunes well they, they talk about wine's holy trinity don't they which Earthshaker, black tiger and mean Street. I, which i think it's unfair because i think you put in rock we trust in that's a holy quartet isn't it um, yeah. But I think any self-respecting YNT fan would always pick their favourite from those four. Yeah, I would. I, I would think so. I think to answer your question, Rich, about how were they not bigger? I mean, who knows? You know, different people have different views. I think the reason was you got to remember YNT started as a covers band, so you know they they were signed to a fairly minor independent label for the first two albums, as Yesterday and Today. The, the, eponymous de- debut and then struck down um which i think are great albums in their own right then they get signed to AM. they weren't a rock and roll label they were a jazz label so you could argue that yt was signed to the wrong label for the early part of their career then they finally um kind of leave AM and they sign to a label that is absolutely almost dedicated to hard rock and heavy metal in Geffen Records. And what happens to Geffen Records? David Geffen sells it to MCA, a, a, a label that has absolutely no interest in rock music at all. The, the, you know, they, they, frankly, MCA, in my view, are the reason why Diamond Head never made it as big as they should have done. The biggest rock album, rock act that uh, MCA had on its roster um, when it bought uh, Geffen was um was triumph you know and, and frankly they were way past their best even then so i think it's a, just a bad luck story i think you know y&t are an amazing band still to this day an amazing band um who deserve far more commercial success than they ever received but they just for whatever reason even when the right things happened the wrong things happened and it's just one of those stories isn't it but the, the other thing that's worth saying about this, and I don't know whether you, you guys agree, Y&T fans are possibly the most loyal fans. You, you, I mean, the, 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 the loyalty to that band is just astonishing. And their faith was tested, the down for the count period. So, um, yep. yeah. Yeah. 
and then through you know arguably musically incorrect and endangered species and you know so yeah the, w- this this is the heyday without a doubt and the big bang begins we kick off with um yeah the title track mean street for those who don't know the band was um at this stage was uh, dave manichetti lead singer lead vocalist phil kenamore his great mate on bass joey alves on rhythm guitar and leonard hayes on drums one of seven albums that uh, this quartet did between the years 74 and 85 and the odd one out for all the wrong reasons of course is dave manichetti because he's the only one who's still alive very very sadly the other three taken from us far too young far too young but yeah this is as good a track as they ever did it's a 10 out of 10 track because it just hits the mark it's just the perfect perfect album opener set to tone i i remember steve sitting in a local government session at hastings and we just spent <laughs> spent the entire session writing out the lyrics to this we were smitten with the lyrics that's right yeah, yeah, yeah. Keeping yeah. up with the Joneses is tough. Yeah. <laughs> Back in your flat, Mark, we, we we were we were singing, we were we were air singing, if you can do that. This weren't we? All, all day, all night. Well, we we just sang this to our heart's content. So we were hoarse. Yeah, I never tire of this track. Brilliant. Like I say, over and over and over and over and over on a C ninety, an hour and a half of Mean Streak, and then you just turn it over and start again. I saw. Y&T on a double bill, but it was a co-headlining tour with Rock Goddess, and the lights went down, and this um, started, this riff came out just amazing. Do you remember when we saw them when the lights didn't go down? I was just about to say, it wasn't always like that, was it? (laughs) (laughs) For those who were there, that fateful night in God knows what year, the Bournemouth International Centre. International it ain't, folks. It's crap. That's what the C stands for. Born with his crap. Um, but that's another story. But, yeah, no, no, Mean Street were opening up that night. Uh, YNC were opening up that night for Gary Moore and Whitesnake, am I right? Yeah. Um, a sort of low-budget Monsters of Rock. Um, and the lights didn't go down when YNC came on stage. And I think the three of us were the only three who realised that the people who were wandered onto stage were, in fact, the band and not just some road crew checking the equipment. But they took it well, didn't they, the pros that they are? It was the um, they started that with Black Tiger because yes. the light didn't go out when they when they were playing the intro to Black Tiger. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, you're never good enough in the eyes of a woman with a mean streak. Don't we know it? <laughs> and so we go into um, track two, which is Straight Through the Heart, not to be confused with the Dio song of the same name, on the grounds that this one's better. <laughs> I love this track. So, would you have put it as a second track? I think it works well. You've you've hit people in the face with track one, and uh, this has got such a great groove, but some real power to it. Leonard does some fantastic Bonham type drumming on it. Um, yeah, I, I really like it as a second track. Come on then, Rich. Let's get that conversation out of the way because you're the only man we can have it with. Leonard Hayes. Um, I really enjoy listening to him drumming. Mark's brother, who's a far, far, far better drummer than me, really, really rates him. Um, I'd say you've got, amongst your drummers, there are those that are just carrying a beat versus those where they're actually using it as a you know, real instrument, your paces and your bonhams and your peats and your whatever. I'd, I'd put 
Only just, but I would put Leonard in the second category. Uh, the, the accents he gives, the the fills, his stuff is not just carrying the beat; it's actually um, contributing to the mood of the song, um, the you know the the rhythm, the energy at, at any particular point. I wish I could drum like him. It's Hayes driving this. Full credit to Chris Sangarides for for pushing this up the mix. Because that, that drum thumps its way through this track, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, really sad to have lost Kenmore, Hayes and Alves. Love this track. I think it suffers marginally being sandwiched between Mean Streak and Lonely Side of Town. But still love it. Still absolutely love it. And so, as Mark points out, track three is Lonely Side of Town, which is... Oh, well, I mean, it's just it's just an unbelievably majestic track, and gives us an opportunity because this is we know about Menachetti the guitar uh, the guitarist, Menachetti the singer, because you'll hear it best on this if if you've not heard the track. I mean, you'll hear it on all this album, but this, this track is it's just brilliant. Ronnie Jones Dio, Mark called him one of the most underrated vocalists of all time. He uh, he is my favourite vocalist of all time. He just dwarfs everybody else the the range in his voice I, I i went to a show that the two of you couldn't make in 2012 and um and he had a heavy cold really heavy cold to the point where he was you know coughing and spluttering between tracks his vocal performance that night was as good as he has ever given and i i, I saw jill minichetti and um and i said how does he do that how does he keep you know, how does he hit that level of performance when he's as ill as he clearly is? And she went, it's just the way it, he just does. He just does. And and I just love the, I don't even know what the word is, or how to pronounce it, timbre, timbre, timbre. Um, oh, it's just, yeah, amazing voice. I mean, he, I mean he's an amazing singer. Oh and, oh, and, oh, and he's playing lead guitar as well. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't think of another of a combination. I love his voice. I'm trying to think. Of, you know, is he my favourite vocalist? No, but you know, back to the you know, conversation we've had. He's not. He's he's got an amazing range. Never sounds like he's stretching for anything. It sounds incredibly natural. And at the same time, he's um, he's playing uh, you know amazing licks on his guitar. Um, and as we know from seeing him live. Generally, without looking at it much, incredibly talented guy. Yeah, yeah. He's all, he's he's also Mark. If we're looking for arsey words that you can't pronounce, it's the vibrato in his voice as well. That lovely sort of tremolo hover at the end of each line. He pulls that off better than anyone. And he he, he I mean, he's got bags of power in his voice. He goes deep. He goes high. Well, you hear it throughout this album, but yeah, that that kind of after the tremolo. But you know what I mean. It's that sort of wobble at the end of his lines, and it's um. I just think he's a brilliant voice. If you think about, we, we talked a few weeks ago, didn't we? You brought up Hearing Aid, the um, the track, um, which I know was a Dio thing, and 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 you know there were half a dozen vocalists on that, you know, from this great array of rock stars, including the likes of Blackie Lawless and Vince Neil, who were on that, but that they didn't sing. They were they were backing vocalists, you know. But Menachetti, front and centre. Thank you very much. And as I said at the time, Steve, when Dio wanted somebody to bring that that song home, 
there was only one person he turned to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, astonishing vocalist, astonishing guitarist. You know, I, I'm 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 kind of irrelevant here because I, I'm I'm just a complete fanboy, so I'm completely biased and you know fully transparent about it as well. Thank you very much. So Lonely Side of Town has um has given way to Midnight in Tokyo, which always feels to me, and not in a bad way, by the way, like they are repeating the trick of forever on Black Tiger. Yes, yes, I've noticed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the closest thing to it on this album. But again, you know, it's it's um it's another kind of show showcase for Dave Menachesi, really. Um, and his his voice and guitar and and what the other thing that always strikes me about this track is that he knows exactly when to dial it back um the guitar on the sort of the 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 more melodic uh harm harmonies um instrumental harmonies there's a really light touch there that in the hands of another guitarist would be handled in a completely different way probably i mean we are gushing but they're not without a flaw. I mean, there's two or three tracks I can think of from um, from the first, you know, two or three albums that, that don't excite me massively. I mean, there's, there's one or two on this album that, um, you know, aren't great. And even going back to, you know, something like Earthshaker, you know, I'm not, you know, not a huge fan of, you know, Squeeze, for example. But why? Why are you not a fan of Squeeze? It just, just doesn't do it for me. Well, would you like it if it was Menachetti singing it? Yeah, possibly. Uh, I don't know. Yes, so our squabble has taken us to the end of Midnight in Tokyo uh, and the end of Side 1. And the opening of Side 2 doesn't let up with um, breaking away. Side 2 needs to kick off with a, with a banger, and, and it does. Just a great track, just a, just a really solid, great track. And yet again, great harmonies, great, great choral work, just everything about it is just on point. Yeah, and uh, a song about, about breaking up and about the love just not being strong enough. It's interesting. You were talking about Leonard Hayes as a singer in Kenimore. We know, I and mean, I've heard Kenimore sing, and he's got almost solo. He's got a terrible voice. When they do it together, it just works, doesn't it? Corally, it just seems to work. Yeah, they, they, were, they were all strong. Hayes was a great drummer. Phil Kenimore was a great bass player. Joey Alves was a... Was a a really kind of mean guitarist as well. You know, he, he was no slouch. I mean, t- together, it was a perfect storm, wasn't it? A perfect storm. But once they'd lost Hayes, once Alves' health deteriorated to the point where he could no longer play, I'm not sure. I mean, I love the band as they are, Mike Vanderhul and uh, John Nyman. They're, they're a great band still, but, I'm, but I don't ever feel like they quite recaptured this magic. No. Oh, no, no absolutely not. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, this is a time capsule and, um, you know, four of the best years of their lives professionally and, and our lives as fans. I mean, it was just the, the fact that there are little secret as well. The world doesn't know them as much as we do and doesn't love them as much as we do. Almost makes it even better. So another another barnstorming riff to kick off a track, Hang em High, second track on um, side two. Yeah, Hang 'em High is a, a great song. Um, it's probably the one song on the album where, where you feel Menachetti is at the top of his range, at the the limit of his range. That was a good song. Yes, yeah, sort of standard structure, and um, but it's good. 
but with always more to come. And uh, that's the case in Hang 'em Highs with the change in tempo and the, the bring it back later. Brilliant. A piece of theatre. Most of their tracks are. Um, and then a lovely dreamy start to take you to the limit. Midpoint on side two. And then as you're just nodding off in your hammock, bang, we're into a big old riff. That lovely pre-chorus. I like this track a lot. I, I just think it's um, slightly camp, the chorus. There's something about the choral harmonies. I love everything about this track. Just the one thing I just can't quite get to grips with are the choral harmonies. Yeah, I know what you mean about the um, chorus harmonies because on a number of the other tracks, I think the, some of the harmonies are done by Menichetti himself. It sounds like this one, they, he'd relied on the rest of the band. And it sounds like they're singing um, from the back of the room <laughs> and it just doesn't work. It'd be, I mean, if they're way, way up like they are on some of the other tracks. I, I, I really like this, this track. And, and if this had been sung by, say, Bon Jovi, it would have been a massive hit. Yeah. Interestingly, critically, this is this is seen as sort of a, a, a cock rock kind of schlock candy, which I, I've never considered. You know, you, I, I suspect we're about to get to Steve your um, your weaker or, or less good song on the album, "Sentimental Fall," which I think I could be wrong, but I think is a hangover from either the sessions for might have been struck down. I think that's when that was written. Okay. Um, I could be wrong. I'm, I'm, but I'm sure sentimental fool did not, was not part of the writing for mean streak. It was, it pre-existed. Um, so I, I can, I can understand why sentimental fool is sometimes seen as, as, uh, maybe not up to the same standard as the rest of the album, but I've never felt that way about um, Take Me To The Limit. I, I no, 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 nor me. I just, there's something about the, I love the the guitar solo in it, for example. It's just dreamy. And a, a lot of the track is, and Menachetti, his interplay with the rhythm section of, of, is just pure gold. It, the chorus is just a bit naff. Um, and so to Sentimental Fool, which actually wasn't the track I had in mind when I thought there was a slightly weaker point to come, but, kind of gives a clue what that track is but, i cannot yeah. no i'm not having that you cannot <laughs> you cannot in your right mind be telling me that down and dirty is your weak point of the album I, i'm telling you i'm telling you right here and right oh, now you've gone mental sentimental fool I, I i like a lot i think and this is where you hear the vibrato menachetti's voice better than anything else on the album i think it's lovely I'm still reeling, man. Richard, come on, sa- save this. Um, this is it, it, it's it's fine. It's a good song. I haven't got much to say about it actually, but it's not the um, weakest on the album for me. Right, we're going out. We're now going into the final track on the album, "Down and Dirty." Mark, I've got a quiz question for you. Stop shaking your head because, right, what what connects these tracks? I believe in you. Winds of Change, This Time, Hands of Time, and Surrender. Uh, they all ended previous albums. They did. And second to that, they're all power ballads yeah. in one sense or another. And I think this album, you mentioned that you, you alluded to the fact that Midnight in Tokyo kind of is a, well, did you say Forever, Rescue Me? Yeah. That sort of yeah, moment. Yeah, but yeah. It's just, this is the one album that really doesn't have 
that kind of big power ballad that they're renowned for, I think. But anyway, that's an aside. Down and Dirty, go on, sell it to me, because I, I just think it's fine. It's just fucking great fun. This is really good fun. Do you know what? I was, I was, I, I had to go out. I'd take Holly out, my daughter. I had to take her over to uh, meet a friend in uh, a town nearby. And um, I was driving back, and it was another hot day because obviously it's you know middle of summer. Windows down on the car, and this was this was blaring out right. And I had to stop at a zebra crossing for two young women. And they were dressed, as you might expect, any young woman would be dressed in the summer. Skirts a little higher than the knee, tops, you know, tight-fitting tops. One of the girls just stood in the middle of the zebra crossing and danced to this. (laughs) And then it got to this bit that we're now at, which is Roll Me in the Mud, baby. And then she finished crossing the road. It was a fucking glorious moment. Well, yeah, okay, but I still say it's the weakest. Tra- yeah, my way or the highway is my way or the highway is the weakest track of um, Black Tiger. Yeah, that's that, that's just where I am. That's, that's absolutely fine. It's just that you're wrong. <laughs> it's not your fault. We all we all do that sometimes. And the and the word weak, of course, is used very advisedly. Very advisedly. This is my second favourite track on the album. <laughs> Well, now you're wrong. <laughs> uh, this is this is the best fun, the best fun. Richard, adjudicate, please. Uh, it is. It's amazing fun. I generally feel that whilst this is fun, Y and T are actually a step above this stuff. Oh Lord, save me! Until they had massive fun. Recording it, I presume the uh, all the laughs and everything are a, a direct live cut of their reaction as they actually finish this song. So yeah, great fun, but um, it, it, it's what it is. It's a bit of fun, but gen- on on the whole, wine and tea are more sophisticated than this. Right, Mark, cheer yourself up by giving giving us a giving us your highs and lows. We know what your second favourite is. What about your favourite? Uh, okay, so favourite is. Um is obviously Main Street. And um, and my uh, ninth favourite uh, track on the album um, is um, is Sentimental Fool. Rich? Um, Main Street, um, top. The furthest away from Main Street is between Breaking Away and Down and Dirty. Um, breaking Away because whilst it's, it does improve, it's got, I think it's got a very average start. It's hard to choose between the two of them, actually. Okay. Well, I'll go um, Mean Street 1, Down and Dirty 9. And all I would say is that it's been a, it's been a really enjoyable week, bringing back some really wonderful memories um, of a great album and a great time. And, um, and for that alone, it's been, a, it's been a 10 out of 10 show, even if the, uh, even if the in- individual scores don't work out that way. No, I'd fully, fully second that. Uh, it's been a really, really good week there. Most weeks, there's there's one album where you kind of feel you, you're not looking forward to quite as much as the others, um, but that hasn't been the case this week. It's been a really good week and, uh, you know, hopefully more like them. But you know what? We're contractually obliged now to go and um, rate these 
So uh, we'll do it. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Right, so uh, time to uh, see how we've all scored these albums from this evening. So uh, just to recap, we started off the show with Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon from 1973, followed that with Boston's self-titled debut in 1976, and then Y&T's fifth album, Mean Streak, from 1983. Richard, uh, let's start with you, uh, and let's start with um, Dark Side of the Moon. So uh, what did you score Dark Side of the Moon? I gave it 8.17. High score. High score. Um Steve, uh, you weren't you, you weren't quite as smitten as Richard Knight with um, Dark Side. So where did you get to? Yeah, a bit bit more lukewarm. Um, just fractions under seven, six point nine. And uh, it will come as no surprise to anybody that um, I scored it the highest, uh, eight point six and a bit, um, to give an overall album score, uh, average album score of seven point nine one eight five two. Moving on to Boston. This was yours, Richard, so we'll, we'll, we'll start with you as well this time. Um, where did you get to with that? Probably better than the rest of us, aren't you? Oh, sure. yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of, yeah, not unsurprisingly, one of my highest scoring albums. So I, I gave it a, an average of 8.56. Steve? Um, 7.375. And I scored it a smidgen over eight uh, at 8.1 if you're rounding up um 8.06 to be precise uh, to give an overall album score and i don't think uh, as i'm not sure this has ever happened before we've actually landed on a, a dead number of eight so it's it's got an average score of eight which um as we'll discuss in a bit um that is a high score that uh for this process not many albums have scored over eight so um and finally, to um, the boys from San Francisco, Y&T, Dave Minichetti and Co. from 1983. Um, this is my album. I gave it um, – uh, sorry, this was Steve. Steve's your album. You should uh, start off. Um, yeah, I gave it 8.16. Okay. Uh, Richard? I gave it a 7.7 recurring. And I gave it a massive fanboy style score of 8.49 to give it an average of 8.1 then all the fours Um, okay so we've rated them Uh, it's time to uh, rank them Um, let's go over to the Hall of Fame and see what that's done for these albums in terms of where they sit in the big list it's time to put the rock in a hard place opening the Hall of Fame so the upshot of all that, and um, we kind of figured that probably before it started, that um, we've got 48 albums in our Hall of Fame now, and these three are all very much ensconced in the top 20, um, which is no great surprise. You could argue, well, Mark and Richard probably would argue that Pink Floyd, probably in their eyes, would be higher than number 17 with Dark Side of the Moon. Um, Richard would argue that Boston would dare say should be higher than it is with 13. The... Pick of the three is um, Y&T's Mean Street at number nine with 8.144. One of now, what, 13 albums that have scored eight or higher, and they're all still trailing the mighty Led Zeppelin four. Yeah, it just feels like nothing's going to shift Zeppelin, doesn't it? I know. 
we've talked about possibilities, haven't we? We've thought through possibilities. Interestingly, it's the, it's the albums that surprise us most that have come closest, like Thunder and Lightning and yeah. um, Lightning, Lightning to the Nations. You know, I, I wouldn't have for one minute seen them as, as potential challengers. I looked at the Black Album or, um, you know, Back in Black, which we neither of which we've done yet as obvious challengers. But, uh, yeah, this is this is a this is a crazy process, and it's thrown up all sorts of weird and wonderful things. So, who knows? We might all click on something really unlikely, send it shooting to the skies. Oh, it's really interesting, Steve, isn't it? That it, look at the gap in terms of score, average score between women and children first and mean streak. There is naught point naught naught six nine four of a point yeah. between. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that's how close this stuff is, isn't it? I mean, in fact, you look down that list and there are a lot of 0.0-somethings. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, you know, we're, we're ranging and you think the, the, the parameters are fairly tight, really. You know, with everything's nothing scoring less than six, nothing scored more than 8.5. So it's just going to get so congested. I mean, there's clearly scope for us picking some poor albums from time to time, although... There's probably not a great deal of point in it, but we'll have some fun with certain things. We're bound to, but um, yeah, the idea was, you know, we're we're championing excellence or excellence in our eyes more than anything else, and um, yeah, so therefore, you know, these narrow gaps are going to be there all, you know, for for as long as we for as long as there's breath in our bodies, and we're still doing this thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm really pleased to see Mean Streak up there. You wouldn't see you go on any non online list and type in top hundred rock albums of all time and i don't think you'd see a yt album on there which i think says more about the people who compile them than it does about yt but it's good to see them in the top 10 whether they'll still be there in you know 10 weeks time who knows um you know that they are very much on the edge of it aren't they at number nine but um, well, if, it, well if they're not we'll just review Earthshaker and shove that there instead <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll give Dave Meneketi the gilded status that he deserves and that other lists haven't given him. <laughs> Absolutely. He's got, and, he's got friends here. Yes, he does. And um, uh, and the reality, of course, is that I, you know, I don't think either you or I um, feel that Mean Streak is their strongest album. So, you know, if, if that's number nine, um, then, you know, unless, unless – uh, Unless Richard hates it, uh, whatever we do, um, you know, once we get round to Earthshaker and, you know, Black Tiger, um, uh, there's absolutely no reason why they shouldn't be in there as well. But let's see. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. You're listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. So that's it. Episode 16 done and dusted. We'll be back next week with episode 17. In the meantime, thanks very much for joining us. Hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next week. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.